You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dallas Debt Discussion for, wow, the 13th of June of 2016. This is episode number one of year number eight of Dallas Debt Discussion. Never having missed a Monday. Seven full years. Never missed a Monday. Amazing. It's your call. So, you know, I've been here. I don't know. Sometimes we've had lots of people, and sometimes we've had less people. But I'm always here, and we're always here to try and help people and answer questions and help with our education because that's what this is about. It is Dallas Debt Discussion. It's not a legal advice line. It's not a legal advice call. We don't give legal advice. One of the reasons we don't do that is because we have no idea what it is. And when I say we, I'm talking about anybody that's on this call, but most specifically the moderators, myself, Terry, John, Jeff, or Jesse if he's on here. Um, we never give legal advice. First of all, we, we don't know what it is. Uh, second of all, if you want that, you have to go find a bar licensed attorney and they'll charge you for it and they'll give you legal advice that's what they do that's their profession but we don't do it here this is all about education it's all about helping people and it's just a matter of us speaking from our own personal experience or the studying that we have done and again when i say we in large part it's the moderators that I've already named, but sometimes it's other people that uh, come here with knowledge uh, of their own experiences or uh, their own studies, but uh, it's never legal advice. It's just discussion. And if we say something about in, in the course of discussing things, well, you want to do this or you want to do that or you should do this or that, please understand that the context in which we're saying that is that's what we do if we are in a simulate a similar situation, yeah. can't talk tonight, yeah, similar situation to yours, or if we were standing in your shoes. So um, it's surely not legal advice. The uh, uh, All of the moderators that you'll hear their voices on here are all litigators in federal court, some of us with more experience than others. It's varied experience in, in different things, whether it be TCPA, FCRA, FDCPA, um, state statutes. So uh, the, the bottom line is, to a pretty great degree, we speak from actual first-hand experience in what we do. It, this isn't just a matter of, uh, well, you come on here and listen to some people and they've read books or they found something interesting on the internet that sounds really good, this and that. No, we are actually involved in this. And I'm <laughs> not not to brag or anything, just to mention it, I'm the most prolific individual here as far as number of lawsuits. Um, 
Jesse has done a lot of them through a period of years. Um, I've got plenty myself. I have uh, 106 lawsuits against Midland Credit Management <clears throat> myself right now, active in federal court, and I have another case against, uh, actually I have two cases going otherwise. One has been settled, and as soon as the paperwork and everything is finished on that, I will dismiss it with prejudice. And the other one I just filed last week, so uh, it's an ongoing deal, and uh, uh, the beat goes on. As long as uh, there's somebody out there that has violated my rights, I will hold them accountable. And if I contact them and we can reach an amicable agreement as to uh, the damages that I sustained and what they're going to compensate me for those damages, then we don't need to have a lawsuit. But the occasion arises from time to time where somebody wants to violate my rights and just walk away with impunity or, you know, we want to throw me chump change. And uh, the thing that everybody should remember is when I go to sue somebody, it is defined by the statutes what I'm entitled to having had my rights violated. And that's what I go by. So uh, if I'm dealing with a TCPA, a Telephone Consumer Protection Act uh, situation, the statute says uh, if it's under Section B, using an auto dialer to call a cell phone without consent, uh, it says that I'm entitled to $500 per call minimum. And at the court's discretion, if they uh, deem the uh, violations to be knowing and or willful, they can uh, treble it. It can be as much as $1,500. That doesn't mean that it jumps from 500 to 1500 It can be as high as 1500 So uh, when somebody says, well, you know, I'll give you $130 for each call, you know, settle this thing. Well, no, that doesn't quite work. Not when, not when the statute says I get at least 500 So this is all part of the uh, negotiating uh, process when you deal with people. And some people are willing to be reasonable. I'm willing to be reasonable. In fact, I've had multiple attorneys tell me I'm reasonable. But you got some people that they just feel that they should be able to violate your rights, basically almost with impunity or uh, just give you some chump change and you're supposed to go away and leave them alone so they can continue doing that to other people. And uh, that doesn't work too well for me. So that's what we do. We help people learn about the consumer protection statutes, how to understand them if they've got questions, how to use the federal courts, because that's what we use in large part, but also to deal with other debt-related issues, possibly if somebody gets sued in uh, a state court over uh, maybe a, a you know credit card or, or whatever, you know various kinds of things debt-related. Uh, there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with those things, and uh, we encourage people to learn how to do them the right way. So, with all that said, the way TalkShoe works, real quick here for any new people that are with us, is uh, when you come on, you are unmuted. To mute yourself, all you have to do is hit star six on the keypad in your phone. It's very simple. And if you hit star six a second time, it's going to unmute you. It's a toggling feature. And if you listen to it, uh, possibly if you've got yourself on a speakerphone when you come on, just hit star six and it'll say, you are muted. And if you hit star six again, it'll say, you are unmuted. It's very simple. It's just back and forth. 
And we always start with good news. And uh, after we get done with good news, then we'll go to Q&A. And to put yourself in the queue to ask a question or make a comment, either one. You know, we, we have some discussion on various things. <clears throat> but uh, to do that, all you have to do is hit star 8 on the keypad on your phone. That will put you in the queue. But uh, like I said, we always start with good news first. And you don't have to raise your hand for that. And I will ask right now if anybody has any good news they want to bring to us. Goodness, what a stampede. What a stampede. You know, we're at the beginning of summer here, and uh, things do get quieter in the beginning of summer because people are running around. They're doing a lot of things. There's a number of people that have gone on vacation, and uh, that's very understandable. But uh, don't let your legal education suffer when you go on vacation. Take a little time, you know, to uh, keep learning. Don't take the summer off. That would be one of the biggest things that you can do to harm yourself. Study, keep learning, even if it's a reduced uh, time allotment to it, it's to your benefit to keep working on things. And, you know, maybe you don't have a situation you're dealing with at the present time, which, you know, if that's, that's the deal, hey, that's great. That's the time to educate yourself because you never know when something will come up. And don't think that, oh, well, I don't know anybody, any money. Yeah, I don't have to worry. I'd never get, you know, there's no way anybody would file suit against me. Well, I got, I got news for you. <laughs> We've had plenty of people that have come on that don't owe a thing to anybody. They never had anything, but they've been sued over somebody else's debt. And if you don't know how to deal with it properly, you can end up with a judgment against you for no legal, that has no legal basis whatsoever. So... Learning how to defend yourself, even if you don't have a problem now, that doesn't mean that you may not have a situation to deal with later because as our economy goes to hell in a handbasket, and yes, I'm using strong words there, uh, it's going to go to hell in a handbasket here before long. And it's going to be like that for a period uh, of years. Well, it's already in the handbasket. It's just not in hell yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, things are going to get much tougher in this country, and a lot of people that maybe are sitting okay now uh, in the not real distant future are very possibly not going to be sitting very okay. And, of course, you know, everybody, you know, wants to believe that they're still going to keep their job. Well, you know, gee, I've been with this company 15 years. You know, I'm not going to be getting laid off. Nothing can happen. Bet me and lose. Yeah. Um, I worked for International Harvester at the uh, Farmall Tractor Plant in Rock Island, Illinois, when I lived up in the Midwest. That plant had been operating since the 1920s, making farm equipment. And there were good times and lean times. You know, business is cyclical, and, you know, there's times that things aren't doing too good. But that plant closed in 1985 because the company, the agricultural division of that company, was sold to Tenneco. And a plant that had been there for 65 years closed, and my job went with it. And I had been there 15 years, and nobody had a clue. I heard no about way. it on the radio on a Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, driving down the street in my pickup. So uh, don't think it can't happen to you. It can. I hope it doesn't. But there's going to be an awful lot of changes in this country, and the financial situation is going to become 
very dire for a extraordinarily large number of people over the next few years. And uh, if anybody thinks that's just, uh, you know, scaremongering and all that kind of stuff, just wait. Just wait. I trade in the financial markets. I pay a lot of attention, a lot of attention to the financial situation, not just here in the United States, but worldwide, because it affects the markets I trade in, things like gold, treasury bonds, uh, <laughs> stock market futures, stuff like that. And uh, things are very ugly out here. In fact, on the 23rd of June, in just 10 days, the UK is going to vote on whether they leave the European Union. Way overdue. And there's been a rather dramatic shift over the last few days in how the uh, polls are going on now. Before the leave the EU, or in other words, uh, Brexit, as it's called, uh, they, the people who wanted to leave were in a minority. That has now shifted. They are in a, the majority. And it's moving very quickly. There's a lot of people that were heretofore undecided, and they are deciding. And uh, a much bigger majority of them are deciding, we want out. The European Union was doomed to fail in the beginning. And the reason it was doomed to fail is because you can't take and put a bunch of countries together that have very, very different cultures, yep. different banks, and uh, different work rules, labor rules. Different societies, everything. Yep. Right. You can't take and put all that stuff together and think that you're going to have any long-term harmony with it. It's, it was just a joke. And it was only a matter of time until it started coming unglued, and we're there. Yeah, this is the beginnings of it, and uh, there's uh, the uh, number of people in other countries, uh, another country that's right behind uh, the U.K. in wanting to get out of there, or the sentiment of the people, is France. Uh you know, no these, but what, yeah, what you do when you get into something like that is you turn over uh, the, uh, you know, how you're going to run your country and how you're going to do things to a group of people. And what if the rest of them decide they want things that you guys just really, really don't like? You get a shove down your throat when you're in the European Union. And there's a lot of countries over there that are just fed up with getting stuff shoved down their throat. And a lot of that shoving down the throat has been done by Germany. Yep. So, um, and anybody that thinks that these changes in the European Union aren't going to affect the United States <laughs> doesn't have a clue about international relations and international finance. And uh, I'm no expert, but uh, I do pay attention. And there's going to be dramatic changes and it, all over the, the planet. It's not just in Europe. It's not just here. It's not just in Japan. It's not just in China. There's huge problems in all of those places that I just mentioned, and they're all somewhat different, but there are similarities on a number of them. Japan has been in deflation 
since 1989. 26, going on 27 years, they have been in deflation. If you don't understand what deflation is, Google it and start doing some reading. They're ready to go down the tube. The young people in Japan have not been having children for many years. Their population is aging dramatically. In fact, you have elderly people in Japan that are doing stuff to get thrown in jail so they get three squares a day. And it's coming to a town near you. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, that's just Japan. It's a uh, it's a demographic situation. Europe is just getting ready to go over the demographic cliff. And I've mentioned before Harry Dent's book, The Demographic Cliff. I would recommend everybody read it. You can get it on Amazon very inexpensively. Again, it's The Demographic Cliff by Harry S. Dent, Jr. Please get a copy of that and read it. Um, the ramifications of your reading and understanding things uh, can be very great to, uh, in helping you plan financially. Things that you should buy at certain times and things you shouldn't buy, like real estate, you know, vehicles. I don't know why anybody is going out and buying a new vehicle right now and financing it for 94 months, but there are people doing it. <clears throat> Who do you know that would pay car payments on a car for eight years. How would you ever not be underwater in doing that? 33% of the vehicle sales now come under leases. subprime lending that's been going on in the auto industry is very much akin to the subprime lending in real estate that blew up starting in 07. Get ready for another thing. But if you're buying a new car today, and I don't care if you're financing it with 0% interest, you're still paying a lot of money for a car. And when everything starts coming unraveled and they start repossessing these cars, there's going to be so many cars at the dealer auctions that the prices on vehicles are going to plummet. And you'll be able to find far better deals on cars in as little as six months to a year, if not a year and a half to two years from now, You'll be able to buy cars for a fraction of what you can buy them for today because of what's going to happen. So, you know, there's time stone real estate. You couldn't run fast enough to get me to buy real estate right now. Oh, real estate's really hot. Oh, yeah, you know, homes are really selling and the builders are building so much stuff. Go read Harry's book. Learn about why things are going to change and how they're changing because the millennials are far different than the baby boomers. Everybody wants to look at the history and say, well, this is what happened before, this is what's going to happen going forward. And they're wrong because they don't 
understand demographics. So the, the bottom line is, and I'm, why I'm taking a little bit of time to mention this stuff to people, is I know there's a lot of people that, you know, they don't understand a lot of the financial stuff. They don't pay that much attention to the markets. You know, they've got their job. They go out, you know, they get their paycheck on Friday. They, in large part, live paycheck to paycheck. Well, that's not a real good thing to be in that position today because things are going to change and things are going to get tough. And and the thing about it is uh, people don't understand how quickly this kind of stuff can happen. And uh, it's just like you've heard us discuss some on these calls, and I'm going to bring it up again because it's very important. Do not have a bunch of money in the banks. I keep enough money in the banks to clear any checks I've written and maybe you know, several hundred dollars more than that. The rest is not in the bank. And the reason it's not in the bank is because when things come unglued, the banking system can shut down very rapidly. Maybe you got, you know, maybe your life savings is 4200 bucks. Maybe that's all you got. And it's in the bank, you know, you got maybe $60 in your pocket. If the electronic banking system shuts down because they do a bank holiday. How are you going to go buy gas for your car? Maybe you got to just, you know, you're right down on E, fumes. And, you know, you always buy your gas. You just go, you stick your debit card in the pump. You know, you don't have a credit card. You just got a debit card. You know, we're not even talking credit. We're just talking, you stick your debit card in, your debit card doesn't work. And, there, and then you look up and there's a big sign in the window, cash only. What happens if you don't have any cash? Maybe you got, you know, $6 and some change in your pocket. That's all the cash you got. But wait a minute, you go to the grocery store and there's a big sign in the window there, cash only, for what they have left in the store, which probably isn't too much unless you're there within the first few hours. What are you going to do? You got to make a decision. Are you going to eat or are you going to buy gas? What if you only got $3 and something? And it's, you know, five miles to where you live. But you don't have any food at home. Which which one are you going to choose? Because when you only have that much cash in your, on hand, <clears throat> you're going to have to make a choice. You're not going to be in a position where you go, man, I'm really glad, you know, I got 80 bucks in my pocket here, but I got, you know, I got more money at home. Okay, I can get... $30 worth of gas, you know, and everybody is driving into the gas stations and they're complaining, you know, how come I can't use my credit card? How come I can't use my debit card? Well, all, all the electronic banking is down. You know, we've, we've, got some, we've got gas left, but we don't know how much more gas we're going to get. If you want gas and you got cash, you better get it now. Yeah, look what's happening now with the EBT cards not working in so many places for days. And that's they, on purpose. They, yeah, Don't they, even oh, think it's a glitch. Yeah. But the whole point is, if you've got cash on hand, you're not forced to make a choice between that, at least right at that point in time. You've got money to buy gas. You may have to go home and get some more. Maybe you don't have enough in your pocket. But um, 
you can go home and get some more money and, you know, you can get some stuff at the store and you can get some gas while they still have gas there. While they still have it, that's the operative that, 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 Exactly. That's, and if you think this can't happen, just wait. And don't find yourself in the situation I'm talking about and then go, oh, my God, I remember Dave talking about that on the calls. Holy crap, I never thought that would happen. This is insanity. This is nuts. These people are getting violent over this. They're getting mad. Man, they just had a fight inside that convenience store, and there's a guy that came running out the door with a with a bunch of food, and the guy's chasing him. That's because the guy wants to eat, and he didn't have any money. He was going to use his debit card, but he isn't going to he isn't going to leave without food. And then, of course, maybe somebody shoots him, or you know, who knows. And everybody, what happened in Orlando this weekend, and I know everybody has to have heard about it by now, this is a very obvious change of the social mood that's going on worldwide. And I know most of you don't even begin to understand that. I pay attention to socionomics which is a study of social mood. And social mood isn't just something in your neighborhood. Social mood is something pervasive all over this planet. Yes. It's and, a lot of it is, and a lot of it is manipulated deliberately. Well, yeah, but it's, this, well, <clears throat> no, social mood, you, you, you can do a little bit of that on a local basis. You can't manipulate uh, social mood overall, Terry. That, you cannot do that. By but, that, I meant the... Uh, Social engineering that's been going on since after World War II. Yeah, but I'm I'm talking even much bigger than that. That the social engineering can be done on the small scale. I'm talking planet planet wide. Anyway, so that that you guys understand this, things, you know, there's been a lot of ugly stuff happening, and I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, the uh, Islamic uh, terrorism, radical Islam which is words that Mr. Obama won't use. He still can't bring himself to use it. When it's right there smacking him in the face, slapping him, he still can't use those words. And I'm not going to get into all of that because we've had some discussion and everybody's got their own thoughts on that. But what I'm trying to lay out here for you, if you'll pay attention to it, is make some preparations for your survival. And part of that survival is having some food because things, when they happen, are likely to happen quite rapidly, far more rapidly than you could ever imagine in many cases. And uh, if you have the kind of social mood that's changing, that's producing these various events around the world, and you notice it's not just here, it's worldwide, and it's now we're getting some of it on our shores, and there's going to be more. Social mood changes. Their social mood played into what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, social mood is turning to the dark side, and it will get a lot darker. And when you have people whose EBT cards don't work, they become violent. 
because a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people that get the government handouts, the EBT cards, feel they're entitled. And when they don't get what they want, they become violent and destructive. And can you imagine that happening, not just in Ferguson, Missouri, or Philadelphia, but from coast to coast? Can you imagine what's going to happen in this country? Do you think there's going to be bloodshed? Do you think there is going to be, in some places, literal anarchy? And what do you think the authorities may try and do about it. There's a lot of potential for this to become that disruptive. I'm not saying it's absolutely going to, but don't think it can't happen in a very large scale, because it can. That's what all the plans for continuity of government, which is not constitutional, have been all about all these years. They know this is coming. And we have to be prepared. We, meaning Joe Average, USA, Joe and Jane, um, if you think it's not going to happen, you just go about things oblivious to it and don't try and make any uh, contingency plans, at least to have some extra food around. I'm not talking, you know, the Y2K stuff, fill your garage with food or anything. But if you're used to, well, you know, you just go to the grocery store about every other day and just grab a little bit of what you need and, you know, well, keep a quarter tank of gas in the car and stuff like that. That's probably not a good thing right now. Take a good look at Venezuela right now. Yeah. Well, that's that's one example. There's there's plenty of examples when you really want to look at it. China is not doing well. China is going to be going into civil unrest to a degree because things are coming unraveled in China and of course their news media is controlled so you're not going to know as much about what's really going on as you think you should or might just like you you don't hear everything that goes on in this country if you try to deal with the mainstream <laughs> and most media of what you do hear on the news you really shouldn't believe <laughs> yeah yeah so my point to everybody, and the reason I'm taking just a few minutes to, to talk about this tonight is because of its importance, because of the fact that, you know, it, it, there's a very simple old saying out there, it's better safe than sorry. Well, yeah. You know, if, if you don't prepare and this stuff happens, what are you going to eat? I mean... How long do you think you personally could go without basically any food? I'm not asking you how long you'd like to go because like how long you'd like to go without food is far different than how far you can go physically and stay alive. Could you go a week without food? Would you be able to survive that long? How many people are in your family? How many people depend on you to feed them? I've done it three three weeks once, and boy, did I get sick. I would not want to ever do it again. Well, most people, but this is this is the, you know, you have no choice scenario. Now, what about, wow, 
you know, I haven't had anything to eat in two days. My God, I'm just starved. Oh, my God, I'm just starved. I can't get any food. There's nothing in the store. There's nothing. At the convenience store, there's nothing there. I mean, it's all gone. You know, um, I nobody's got any food. And if anybody's got any food, they, they, you know, I've asked some people I know, no, well, I've only got a little bit here and i got to keep it for us. Just think about how you'd feel, you know, we're used to what, eating three times a day? Some of us, you know, maybe there's only one. I eat three times a day, okay? I'm, I'm one of those traditional types. But if you think that you could go eh, three, four, five days without eating anything and be okay, well, you know, it's good. I'm, a, I'm on, you know, this is not the way I want to go on a diet, but I can do okay. You really think you'd be real happy, comfortable, all that kind of stuff? I doubt it. But it's up to you to figure out whether that's a risk you want to take or not. And again, like I say, I'm not trying trying to talk people into, well, I'm not trying to talk people into anything. I'm trying to get you to be aware and to consider making some contingency plans for yourselves. Keep your car fairly well filled up with gas. You never know when something weird might happen. And if you've got... Let's say, let's say you live in a metropolitan area. I live in Dallas. I live in a you know, pretty good area in the north part of town. I'm a ways out from areas that uh, lower income areas that might tend to be more of a hotbed of uh, violence or problems if things got real bad real quick. But I have a a plan. I, I have a place to go that's about 30 miles from here. It's out in the country. It's out in the woods. Because I've got friends that have worked and made arrangements and stuff. There's a place I can go. But if I don't have enough gas in the car, I can't get there. So I keep enough gas in the car. And if you don't leave soon enough, you might not be able to get out of town. <laughs> well, that's, that's part of it, too. But the whole point is, why... Be careless, knowing that there's potential for this stuff to happen. You know, look at what's going on, the antagonism in the election situation that we're dealing with now. I mean, look at the divisions between the so-called Republicans and Democrats. Well, And amongst themselves. Well, and amongst themselves, especially the Republicans. So, you know, uh, Donald Trump's trying to uh, do something that needs to be done, and of course, uh, everybody in the world is is against him. Well, it's because all the people that are against him like it the way it is because it benefits them, and they don't want to change. But Donald Trump knows that things do need to change. Now, has he got all the answers? Is he doing everything right? No, I'm not going to say that because I don't I don't believe he is. Not one person can. <clears throat> no. But the whole point is for everybody, make some contingency plans. Don't think, oh, well, I'm okay. We're okay. Well, that's today. That may not be that way 30 days from now or 60 or 90. Maybe nothing happens till after the elections. We don't know. But remember, there's a lot of debt out there that isn't being taken care of. In fact, uh, for most of you, I'm sure none, just about nobody on this call listening to me 
knows the name Bill Gross. He's known as the Bond King. He is the founder of PIMCO, which was the largest bond fund in the world. And uh, he recently, basically, uh, you know, he had disagreements with some people there. He left PIMCO, and he is now with Janus, which is a very large uh, investment, bond investment firm, and, and they do other investments as well. But uh, Bill Gross came out last week, and uh, there's most people in the industry pay very close attention to him because he's been right for way too long. He came out last week, and he says, we have a 10 trillion dollar supernova that we're sitting on. And if you know what a supernova is, that's a star that explodes. Ten trillion dollars of debt is now out there trading at negative interest rates. And if you think about that, maybe, you know, there's people on here, they've never been in a position where they've invested in bonds and stuff like that. When somebody sells bonds, investors buy those bonds. And I'll give you a very well-known name of a company that just issued negative interest bonds. And it's your friendly baby powder manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson. They just issued a bunch of bonds with a negative interest rate. In other words, the people that bought those bonds pay Johnson and Johnson to loan them money to for them to loan Johnson and Johnson money normally when you take risk and you loan money to somebody you buy their bonds they issue bonds saying okay we need money they issue you a bond they're going to pay you so much interest Companies like Johnson & Johnson are now saying, okay, if you want to lend us money, we're going to charge you for that. Basically, they're getting free money. They get paid. Now, you tell me how long that can logically last. That's insane. Of course it's insane, and that's what Bill Gross is talking about with the $10 trillion supernova that we're sitting on. There's $10 trillion in bonds that are currently, right now, at negative interest rates. But the bad part is, just several months ago, there was only $6 trillion. The amount at negative interest rates is increasing that rapidly. And it can't go on but we don't know exactly when that's going to come unraveled. And we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But common sense would tell just about any person that can think past the third grade level, it's probably not going to be good what's coming down the pike for the financial system. And if you think things got harrowing in 2008 were congressmen were calling their wives and saying, get every dollar out of the bank you can right now because they were afraid that it was all going to be shut down and they wouldn't be able to get any cash. That was a warm-up drill for what's coming. And, you know, 
oh, my God, I should have listened to what Dave said. I should have done some. That's too late. Sorry. It's too late. You can't eat and subsist on air. I mean, maybe, I don't know how long you could live on grass and dandelions. Of course, that's if it happens during the summer. But if you don't have cash on hand and the banking system shuts down, which there's very high likelihood it's going to eventually, and God knows how long it'll be down, and God knows that if you're one of these people that's got a chunk of money in there, how much of a haircut you're going to take. And if you don't understand that, go read about, just Google Cyprus, C-Y-P-R-E-S-S, Cyprus, uh, R-U-S, Cyprus haircut, and go read about what happened there. The people that had a bunch of money in the banks there lost about 60% of it. They just said, oh, well, we're taking your money. They've already got the plans for bail-ins here in our country. Right. If you've heard the term bail-in, that's what's used. That stuff's all out there. It's all public knowledge. But most people don't pay any attention to it. They don't take it seriously. Ah, that's just some more crap that they're talking about. Don't put yourself in a position where it can happen to you. How long have you worked for the money you have? How hard do you work for the money you have? How would you want somebody to be able to come up to you and steal half or more? And you can't scream to the police and say, the guy robbed me. My God, he took half of my money. Arrest him. Put him in jail. No, because they're not going to do anything about it. They're, They're the ones sanctioning it. That's not the way it'll work. And if you don't think it can happen, well, go... Go contact somebody in Cyprus and ask them about it. It's already happened there. And if you think it can't happen in the United States, you're only kidding yourself. People don't talk enough about this, and the American public is so, whatever, I just, you know, they're complacent, you know, well, we just, you know, I hear this stuff all the time. I'm not paying attention to that. Hey, you do that, it's on you. Never going forward will you ever be able to say, well, if somebody had just told me about it, I could have done something. Well, I'm telling you. And if you don't do something, it's your problem. It's not mine. I'm looking out for me. I'm not, I, you know, it's not my job to look out for other people. For my daughter, yes. But you need to take this stuff seriously, and if you don't, you are, could be making one of the biggest mistakes of your life because we're going to have events that occur in this country that nobody in the older age bracket, like I am, I'm going to be 69 next month, none of us, and, and especially our parents, could ever have envisioned some of the stuff that's going on now and that will be going on in the next year or two or three. So, you know, I'm not trying to scare everybody. I'm trying to make people aware. Um, I pay attention to a lot of this stuff. I'm in the process of recovering from a very expensive divorce, as many of you know. And uh, I need money to survive. 
and I pay attention to it, and I work diligently to uh, make money trading, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I appreciate all the contributions I get from the debt collection industry, because it's been very, very helpful to me, and I'm going to keep doing it. And any of you that are not pursuing things that you should, well, I don't know, maybe you feel you're independently wealthy. I'm not. So, um, again, I'm not trying to scare everybody. I, what I'm trying to do is make you aware of what's going on out here because if you think we've had a bunch of stuff with debt collection and debt issues the last few years, you look out and see what's going to happen yet. in the next five, six, seven years. With what's going to be going on, we could have 10,000 people a night on these calls. There's going to be that many people out there in dire straits. Well, I would say there are already, um, but not as bad as it's going to be. And really, there's a lot more people today than there was five years ago because of this group and people sharing. Well, people that are you know able to learn, yeah. But the, mm -hmm. the point is... There's going to be a lot more demand. There's going to be uh, there's a tremendous amount of debt out there. Yep. And that debt cannot be sustained longer term. It, it's things have to change, and they are going to change. And they're not going to change at your timetable. They're going to change at other timetables that you have no control over, and you won't have any control over the speed with which things change. And if you aren't somewhat prepared, I mean, you know, maybe things happen that you're not fully prepared for, but it, it, even if you're partially prepared, if you've done something rather than nothing, it might be a lifesaver for you. So uh, please take what I've said seriously. Uh, we're here to help you. We don't get paid for doing any of this, as we've said so many times. I'm trying to share information that I have that I make a point of paying very close attention to because of my situation and uh, the fact that I don't have the financial cushion that I would have had if uh, I hadn't been scammerooed in, in a very expensive divorce a few years back. So I'm in recovery mode, and uh, I'm not going to starve, let's put it that way. If I didn't go out and pick up one more thing, I'll I'll do just fine. Yeah, Dave, if your wife picker wasn't broken. Yeah, yeah, my my picker's definitely broken, but it's it, it's in the trash. It will no longer be used. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's uh, I know this is some serious discussion tonight and talk about things, but it's it's something we're getting closer um worldwide there's a lot of things that are coming unraveled that are becoming more violent, uh, you know, the terrorist attacks are just part of it. When the financial stuff kicks in on top of it and the stress uh, and people do not uh, have food, when they're put in a very difficult position, uh, people do very strange things and we Especially have... Especially when they have hungry children. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, if there's a, a choice between, you know, uh, you know, give me your food or I'm going to kill you. Uh, if they're, 
you know, somebody's got screaming hungry kids at home and you've got food and they want some of the food and you say no and they have a means to attack you, take it for granted they're they're going to do it. And if you don't have a way to protect yourself and the food that you have, you're not going to be in a very good position if that stuff comes to pass. And when you live in a large metropolitan area, which a lot of people do, not everybody does, I happen to, like I mentioned earlier, um, with that many people in the smaller spaces, things can get very out of hand very rapidly. So uh, please take heed. And with that, I'm going to go back one more time and see if anybody has got any good news. And if they don't, then we will go to Q&A. Anybody got any good news? All you got to do is speak up. Yeah, hey, Dave, this is Thomas. I got some good news. Hey, hey. how you doing, buddy? Hey, congratulations on your uh, seven, your streak in the start of an eighth year. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it sure wasn't something that I planned, but I've, I've committed to it, you know, to, to be out here and keep this going for everybody. And like I said, it's, it's all you guys call. It's never been mine. I'm just the one that pushes the buttons and makes it happen so that you guys can get information and interact with each other. So thank you. You're welcome. I mean, you kept it going until the time I was able to and ready to hear about it. So, <laughs> you know. Um, my good news is the main thing is, is uh, I had some uh, contact with the state attorney general today um, in my state case. Uh, this thing about a summons being signed by someone other than the clerk has really been stuck in my crawl. Mm-hmm. And and it seemed like me and the judge are about the only two people that took notice of this. And Even cared. Uh, yeah, cared. Good point. And I, um, so while I was out Saturday, I thought, you know, it really doesn't matter how my case goes. I need to, I need to do something about this. I've got to find the truth. And so Saturday, I just sent a, a note to the, uh, to the AG just introduce myself and kind of describe what happened. And this is via email, I'm assuming. Yeah, just an email. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. Here's my name. Here's my case that I'm a defendant in, and this is what happened. And it's and I kind of said I think, and this is what I said. I said I think I, I'm a victim of a forgery. And I got a nice reply back from a gentleman today, like third, you know, it got forwarded twice, and he contacted me uh, by email. And he just he made some suggestions, which I followed up on. But he asked me, it was kind of cool because he said one little thing that I didn't catch the first go-around. He said, now, I'm an ex-prosecutor, and this would be the one question I would have about it. And so I thought, so anyway, I, I followed up and found out that the local officials and law enforcement are just not going to investigate this. They're, they're not even interested. Yeah. And uh, I let him know that, this guy at the AG. But I replied back and he said he had asked what he would want to know what the clerk he the clerk had said. And I just so in my last reply I just said, you know, I heard the clerk say that he did not sign that document. And once I finished that sentence, now I had my outline to do the Title eighteen notice that I'm aware of a you know, of a forgery. Because nobody knows who signed that document. So I just wanted to pass that on as good news because I had again I've been treated by fairly nicely when I've uh, by some state officials and 
you know, but I'm taking the action. Good. Awesome. Good job. I just, thank you. I just and I got my title. I'll get that out in the mail tomorrow. And uh, I just wanted to share that. It gets a little intimidating sometimes and you get a little skittish, but, hey, you know, got to, got to fight on. Well, yeah, you, you make your inquiries, you ask questions, and, you know, it's kind of interesting some of the answers you get. Mm-hmm. get Especially it. if that answer is, that's not my signature. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's what, it was cool that, that that little prompt by him allowed me to focus on a fact that I could swear to under perjury. Uh-huh. And that is, I heard the clerk say he did not sign that document. Uh-huh. So, you know, and I think that's a good thing. And yeah. What was, you know, and the local, locally was the DA, the district attorney in the county, they said, we don't handle civil matters, directed me to the sheriff's office, and the sheriff's deputy flat out said, I am not opening up an investigation on this. That's how we do things. And I was like, oh, okay. So. Oh. So you're telling me you routinely break the law and you're not going to change it. What's that one case y'all cite? The judge says you've been doing, uh, you've been doing this so long you think it's legal. That's legal, Judge Boyko yeah. <laughs> out of Ohio. That was, uh, was... He, when he dismissed 13 foreclosure cases by Deutsche Bank. Mm-hmm. So I, was think, I was thinking about that. So uh-huh. that's my good news, and I'll get back in. I'll get in the queue for a question later. Thanks. Okay. All right. Thank you. Very good news. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Bye. Anybody else got any good news? Okay. Uh, the only other uh, good news that I've got is uh, uh, after the call tonight, I am going to uh, finish one letter that I didn't get finished before the call one request, I should say, and then I'm going to take my handful of envelopes uh, and drop them in the mailbox down there of all my requests to various uh, uh, agency or companies to provide my consumer reports. And of course, these include Innovus and LexisNexis and some companies that are owned by Equifax and operate in different ways, so on and so forth, and one of them is Recon, which is a company that has a database of people that sue debt collectors, so they can tell everybody, oh, you got to watch this guy, he sues people. Well, they're a consumer reporting agency, and I've requested a consumer report from them. And if they don't provide it, and I've talked to people that have requested it, and it was not provided. And if they do that with me, that's a violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And they shall be sorry. Well, let's just put it this way. I probably won't just sit back and do nothing. Is that a reasonable assumption, knowing what I do? Yeah, I guess it is. So anyway, I'm I'm going to these various agencies to see what I get, and of course the one that we talked about the other day with the uh, utilities and everything, uh, they're getting one as well. So anyway, we don't have anybody uh, that's uh, got any other good news, so I'm going to go to our Q and A, and we're going to go to Eastern 
Southern California. You've been unmuted. Go ahead. Hi, Peter here. Via Collapse. How are you all? Pretty good. How are you doing, Peter? Good. Dave, Terry, uh, who else is there? Anybody else? John? No? I'm uh, here. Yeah, John's here. Okay. Yep, Jeff's here. Okay, my question is, so uh, I sent a dispute letter to uh, my credit card for reporting past due, uh, disputing how they're reporting. And they sent me back a letter saying that uh, if I'm questioning that, to send a copy of my credit report showing the item I'm disputing. And once they get that, they'll investigate. So I'm just wondering, should I respond to this? If I should, uh, how should I respond? Oh, and they they enclosed a a copy of the billing statement with uh, the information, with the past due information that they're reporting. Well, are you following the... Uh, Terry's procedure out of the website? Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, well, uh, I'm using the letters. Well, but are you following your procedure? Because it tells you exactly how to do this and what the procedure is. There's more than just a letter. She lays out the whole mm-hmm. procedure of exactly how to do it, when you do what, and how you deal with it. Oh, See, there, okay. there's there's more there's more than just oh well I get a copy of a letter and I I send this there's a certain way that you send the letters timing who gets the letter first whether it goes to the CRA and uh, you know whether it goes to the furnisher all that stuff that's why you need to take the time to go through the webinars that are in the website because it tells uh, okay. you precisely how to do that I want to point something out here all right mm-hmm. if if that request that you received was in response to a properly filed dispute with the credit reporting agency on a trade line that's being reported, asking you for a copy of the credit report is wholly improper. You are disputing information they are furnishing to the credit reporting agency They have received an ACDV, which has that information on it and has coded your dispute. That is an improper attempt to shift the burden onto you and escape the liability for investigation. Use common sense. Stop and think. What are you disputing? Information in the trade line. What does the CRA do when it receives your dispute? It sends an ACDV to that furnisher, and that ACDV contains every bit of the data you are disputing. So what has your credit report got to do with it? Uh-huh. I see. They can't glean anything from your credit report that they haven't already been given except your other personal information that's none of their business. Mm-hmm. But here again, it's a matter of you have to follow the proper procedure, and that's why I say you need to go through the webinars and follow Terry's specific instructions instead of just going and getting a letter and putting it off in the mail and thinking you're doing it right because you, there's a very specific right and wrong way to do it. Right, Terry? Yes, sir. So, oh, okay. you know. And any response 
that you get, especially from a furnisher after a dispute with the CRA, you really need to pick it apart. What does it say? And use real good common sense. You need to understand the process. And I go over that in depth in, in the webinar. What happens when you file a dispute? Exactly what happens on the CRA's end? Exactly what happens on the furnisher's end? And if you understand that process, you can spot an, an improper request on their part real easy because it's not part of what's supposed to happen. Okay, yeah, I'll refer back to the webinars then. <clears throat> okay, that answer your questions? Okay. Yeah, that's it, that's my only question. Thank you all very okay. much. Very good. Uh, all right, let's go to guest three. You have been unmuted, go ahead. Hey, this is Thomas again. Um, hey, hey, man, <laughs> you're you're a low number guest here. Yeah, I that means you got in books. early, everybody. That's that's <laughs> what that means. I was up at I was up about two or three o'clock, so I, I didn't know <laughs> if I'd make it all the way through the call. Um, <laughs> man, yeah, but it it's so. My question is, I have an FDCPA complaint filed in Northern District of Georgia against an attorney, an attorney firm both that I have alleged are debt collectors with four John or Jane Doe's. The waiver of sir the notice of lawsuit and waiver of service. Uh, I gave them thirty days, so that'll be coming up here June seventeenth or eighteenth. And uh, I want to make an amended I want to amend the complaint uh, soon. And my question is like when I attach a doc, so let's here. How do I say this? I get the Dunning letter when I make the allegation that I got done, and I include the Dunning letter, and then I include my demand notice of dispute and demand for validation as, a, as another factual allegation, and then I attach their first response that they call verification. Now, you're talking about you're attaching these things as exhibits to your yes. complaint? Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I wanted to clarify. So, allegation one, paragraph one, C, page you know, attachment A, 1A2. Okay. Okay. So, Mike, what I think I've done, what I'm trying to ask is when I may attach a document that the debt collector provided to me, and so let's say they say, see, we verified this, and I've attached that letter to my complaint. Does that undo my allegation? Can they use that to say, hey, look, he's, he's attached the document that says we verified it? Well, actually, uh, I don't recommend putting that stuff in as exhibits okay. with a complaint because uh, a complaint is a notice pleading. Uh, it's just giving the defendant fair notice of what the allegations are against them so that they have an idea, you know, how to uh, defend against it. They know what uh, claims you've made. A lot of people kind of get the feeling, well, you know, i got to put all this evidence in there and everything. You, you're, not, you're not fighting your battle. 
you're not doing all your evidence and everything with your notice pleading. That comes, you know, presenting that stuff comes later. Um, and if you got something that's kind of questionable about uh, like that, um, leave it out. Is my suggestion because as, as long as you pr uh, properly state, you know, they, you know, they sent you a Dunning letter. I sent them uh, a demand for validation. They provided, uh, a, they responded with a document that did not uh, validate the debt. Okay, now what are they going to do on the other side? They're going to come back and they're going to say, oh yeah, 12B6, we validated the debt. The debt. He has no basis for his uh, case. He's failed to state a claim. Well, then you would have to go back and make the arguments to whatever they put in on that 12B6 as far as them saying they validated. Now, you know, when, what did they put in to valid or provide to you to allegedly validate the debt? They just provided what was called a detailed delinquency report, and it contained just one entry for an amount that just mimicked what was in their Dunning letter. There was no uh, there was no address for the creditor, the original creditor, or the creditor. There was um, nothing. There was no other account history. It just had a missing value for 2014, and there was no. Yeah, the, the, okay, yeah, they they failed to uh, provide validation of a debt. They uh, only uh, provided a document with one entry in it, so on and so forth. You can you can write that into your uh, uh, factual allegations in your uh, in your claim okay. in your and complaint. That's, okay. that's all. Yeah, I think. those were the only. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, those were the only three I attached just to get the, the ball rolling. Was I mm -hmm. the initial Dunning letter, my demand and dispute, and the first response? Because from yeah. there on, everything else follows because they yeah. didn't validate. Right. Now, did you include that with your original complaint? I did. Okay. Well, then you probably want to go ahead and put it in <clears throat> with your amended complaint. Okay. Rather than you know pulling it out and referencing it, because your your new complaint's going to become the operative complaint, and then that's going to you know raise a flag like, okay, why'd you have this in there in the first one? You don't have it in the second one, because you know that's a pertinent part of your case. But yeah, you can you can state that you know you can make your uh, factual allegation that they provided a, a document that only you know showed. Uh, one one item or whatever you know describe how it's uh, wholly deficient of uh, anything related to uh, uh, validation and accounting of the debt for for you to determine how that number was arrived at. Because okay. there's plenty more I can fill in with just with that, and that's kind of wanted to round out the allegations because there was some missing spots that I think I could account for with allegations. But then I didn't want to overwhelm anybody with all these other attachments, and I thought that's yeah, yeah. You you know you're 
your uh, complaint you want to keep reasonably simple. You've got to be detailed enough to make a plausible, you know, that we talk about the word plausible because of Twombly and Iqbal, the standard that was set, uh, and the plausibility really came under uh, Twombly. But um, that you, you don't need to get into all the minutia on things. It's just got to be that when the, the court reads it and they can say, well, okay, you know, they – uh, they sent him a demand for payment, and he sent him a demand for validation, and uh, they didn't really send him much of anything. And right. so, you know, it would appear that uh, uh, he may have a case. It's plausible that uh, he he does have a case against them, so the, it'll go forward. And should uh, and of course, you know, if they come up with a 12b6, then you're going to have to see precisely what their arguments are, and then you're going to have to refute those. And then. That's always an opportunity that if I have the right, if I have the documents to, to counter their motion to dismiss and I attach that to my response, that could be make force it into being converted to a motion for summary judgment. Is that right? Well, that's, yeah, so you got that potential there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know then because it's, it's really that simple. They, they done me for a for let's say $325 on June 19th, and my final allegation is, you know, as of today, there's still no proof that I owed them 325 on June 19th of last year. Mm-hmm. And I have a uh, document that they actually sent to me that said, no, you didn't owe 325 on June 19th. You owed uh, 610. So it even they count they their their own documents contradict each other. Right. Okay. Well, then they misrepresented the amount and character of the debt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that helps and a lot, you, Dave. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's on its face. Uh, your, uh, when they when their documents state the discrepancy, I mean, you got them right there. Okay. That's okay. That's what I thought. I mean, yep. no, it, but what I would need to know is how to express it in the complaint just through allegations rather than yeah, yeah, you don't need to put the uh, um, uh, documents in there. You know, just express it. You know, uh, the defendant uh, provided document, you know, such and such a document saying this, and then uh, also provide a, a, another document on, uh, dated such and such stating that uh, the amount was this. Well, you know, they obviously misrepresented the amount and character of the debt. One of the two may be true, or both of them may be false, but one of them for sure has got to be false. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, that helps a lot, and appreciate the time. I'll talk sure, to you. sure. Anytime. All right. Let's see who else we got in here. We've got Southern California. Hello, Southern California. Hi. Hi there. How are um, you? Doing good, doing good. good. Um, I, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, my phone disconnected like three times, so. Uh, I I yeah, yeah, you kind of disappeared on us. Yeah, I don't know what happened. It's very strange every once in a while that happens. Um, I went to see if John was on the phone, if I could ask a few questions pertaining to what I was talking about before. He just yeah. happens to be with us. But, but I don't remember the particulars. <laughs> it kept cutting out. <laughs> it was uh, regarding sanctions that the opposing counsel has filed because 
she didn't get a deposition because she gave me six days notice. And then before that, she gave me, I think, 10 days notice. And she had six months to do discovery, literally, and did nothing and then waited to the last minute. So now she put in, um, or, or sent, filed, I should say, sanctions under 37D. And we were briefly talking about that because I know there were different types of sanctions. And I wanted to find out is 37D because I'm only familiar with you know 11, and does uh, she didn't provide the 21 days, and I didn't know if you had any input on the 37D versus say the the 11. On Rule 11 sanctions is the only one that requires you to give 21 days notice before you file it, and that's a way of that that's usually done at the time. It's usually done instead of filing a motion for summary judgment. They go, look, you know, you you filed your complaint. There's improper stuff in it. What you're alleging is sanctionable because you've you've filed a frivolous claim, and so we're giving you 21 days notice to you know withdraw your claim, or we're going to file for sanctions. Same thing if you filed a motion of some sort that they said was a frivolous motion. Um, then they've got to give you 21 days advance notice to give you an opportunity to withdraw your motion before they file for sanctions. Under okay. Rule 37, there's no 21-day requirement. Okay. So in that case, I'm just going to be responding to it based on that I didn't have sufficient notice. And I said that. And I even stated in there that, um, you know, I have no problem with doing it, but you need to give me more notice. I can't just drop everything and, you know, travel to them to get it done. So... Right, and um, what relief are they? What relief are they demanding in their motion? Um, I have to look again. I don't remember offhand what it was. Um, was it the I ability did, to depose you? <laughs> yeah, probably. She's I mean, that's it, the important part. It was just for the TCPA portion. Is what the extended, uh, we'll say, discovery period was but it wasn't really sufficient. I mean, it was sufficient notice for them to give me at least two weeks' notice, which they didn't do. They waited and then did it. And I told them, I think, on I received it on Friday, and I emailed them back on Wednesday for the following Monday, stating that I wasn't going to be there because this is the second time now that they've done this and give, you know, not given me proper notice. Um I'm looking right now to see specifically what it was here. You know, plaintiff's life does not revolve around uh, the defendant wanting to wait till the 11th hour to do discovery. Right, or lack of planning on their part doesn't constitute a crisis on mine. Right. Yeah, and the other the other thing too, what she was stating was that. I ignored their meet and confer attempts. Well, what did she do? She emailed me at 6 p.m. or 10 p.m. that night just saying she wanted to talk to me the next morning at like 8 a.m. or something. Well, I That's didn't even get that to respond to it, you know what I mean, until the afternoon. So I emailed her back and said, I can talk at this time. And then, I, of course, I didn't hear from her. So it was like yeah, well, she didn't call me. That's, She's not not good, that's not a good faith attempt. That's just sending an email. 
that's sending an email with the intent, intent for the opposing party to be unable to respond in a reasonable manner. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not one time has she called. And it says here that they've incurred, oh, $1,500. Um, let me think here. Um, the company has incurred $1,500 in relation to the sanctions. Um, I don't know exactly how they would have incurred $1,500 because I've given, given them ample time to... I mean, after I was noticed, I gave them a response within, I think, three days both times saying, I'm not going to be there. Well, um, yeah, they had ample time to cancel anything, so they weren't on the hook right. for a bunch of money. I mean, it wasn't part like 24 hours. It was like days. Um, part so of I don't it know. Was for drafting the notice to you, and part of it would be for drafting the notice of uh, the motion for sanctions. You know, they consider yeah. all those things part of it, too. And and but you can say that they failed to detail. You know, they put out the sum of fifteen hundred dollars, but they failed to show what this fifteen hundred dollars is for. Is it for the email <laughs> giving eight hours? Yeah, to I, that's what I don't see. I'm trying to. She's saying it's on her declaration. I'm just trying to see if I can find that um, where that was. I didn't see a declaration. Um, and then also, if she failed to provide a declaration and the motion refers to it, then the motion's unsupported. No, so. she did. She did. I just didn't. I because it's listed by number, so I didn't see it right now. Um, it says requested availability. See, she's asking. This is what I think is funny because if you line this up, it's very easy to understand. Um, Discovery ended April 22nd, right? And she asked, sent, I received it, I think, on the 14th, let's say the 13th of that month. And I had hearings and other stuff going on. So I said, I cannot make this because I have to file other documents for another case on that date. And I told them again within a couple days. So she's responding back, and I'm saying, that's not ample time because you didn't give me enough notice. So she's saying, well, what days are good? And I'm going, if discovery ends on the 22nd, you're done. You've had six months. It doesn't go beyond that, that time period you right. know, of the discovery cutoff. So that's where she's saying, well, I didn't, give her, I didn't give her availability after that time period, which is by order that discovery is done. Right. You're well, not you required could. to. You could give yeah, her a date after it, but then she couldn't use the the uh, she couldn't use the deposition. Well, I wasn't going to do it because I knew that was the cutoff. It's like I'm not going to be able to do anything because you know what I mean. The cutoff was that time period, so I'm right. not going to be giving that. Yeah, you yet. can't let somebody force you into going overtime. But as yeah, so then she's doing the same thing again. The, oh, the second time, go ahead. As we've stated many times before, when you're faced with a close deadline and you're, objection, and you're objecting to the deposition, when you've been properly noticed, you still need to show up for the deposition, but the day you go to it or the day before, you can file a motion for protective order so that they can't use anything gained during the deposition. In other words, you complied with the notice, but you're limiting it so they can't use anything they find during that deposition. Yeah, well, well, her problem was she, didn't, she wasn't able to go. I wasn't because able of to other go. Stuff I had motions had. to file and other deadlines like on that date, and I had the hearing. Our hearing was 
five, four days before the discovery cutoff. So it's like right. I had to prepare for that, and I didn't have time to even go. And was all this the communications in writing? Well, I didn't. I don't feel it's none of anybody's business. I mean, I see that I could not make it due to the time restraint, and I did say I'm working on another case deadlines due on that date, but I didn't go into obviously specific details. Oh, you don't in have writing? to go into the detail. Yeah. Yeah. In writing. But she, yeah, oh yeah, in an email to her. Um, well, then, then that, then that's what that's what you need to do. And one thing that I've tried to impress on people in the webinars is when you're dealing with really pointed stuff. It's a good idea to type up a letter to the opposing counsel, sign it, scan it, and attach it to the email, and then mail a copy to them also. Not that it's really going to do anything mailing them a copy, but it's more formal than just an email. By attaching a written letter that's signed to an email, you've, and it says, you know, sent via email and U.S. Postal, first class, whatever, Right. Then you've made extra efforts to give them constructive notice. An email might be notice, but mailing something is constructive notice. It's actually put on paper, and you had to take it to the post office and pay a fee and mail it. So she's just stating that the 1500 is attorney fees in connection with the motion for sanctions. So it, apparently that's for what the cost that they're charging just to, to file for the sanctions mo motion? That's the cost for the sanctions and the cost for noticing you to set up the deposition and whatever, you know, emails or time she spent communicating with you. Those are their general fees. And if it ever can't, and if push ever comes to shove, all those things, you know, fall under what the court refers to as the lodestar method of calculating, and they would have to provide time slips showing the amount of time and effort put in and what the going rate is for this type of case based on the level of experience of the attorney that did the work. Because time slips will actually show whether it was a senior attorney, a pencil pusher, or even a law clerk or a, a paralegal. And they all have different rates. Mm-hmm. They, they okay, always go so, for more. They always go for more, but it gets cut down. You know, we've heard people on the calls that have got sanctions or penalties or whatever. You know, that can be tens of thousands of dollars, and they get it cut down substantially, ten cents on the dollar. Um, the other thing on this is, what about the days? And again, I know because it doesn't. It just says reasonable amount of time. And anybody I've talked to and everything I've looked at says it, minimum like two weeks to uh, 30 days is typically what you get notice. Mm -hmm. um, I was just curious if there was anything because I know you mentioned, like you said, to get the protective order and all that. It states under I don't know which one, 37 were about the 14 days. Um, but well, I've, I've the, on the uh, federal rules of civil procedure. Notice for deposition has to be 14 days. But where is that stated? Because it's not stated under deposition rule. Yeah, it's in there because I had this issue. And she, she gave right. like four days. And that's... 
and that's from when you're, um, I guess you could say, officially noticed, right? Because she's she's adding in the time that they emailed it to me, which isn't the it written notice. Count. Oh, yeah, but that's the court the court will uphold the email as notice because they did in my case. But but you can yep. argue against it because unless you've waived service under Rule Four, they have to serve you as a pro se by U.S. mail. That's true. Right. Right, and that's what you I have was to doing. argue every single point. The court won't give it to you unless you argue every point. You need to sit down and read through each one of these things and look and find out where all the angles are. Okay, so I'm curious, Terry, where you saw that because I've gone through this and we actually looked it up. Remember on the call last time, and it didn't state it doesn't state a date. It just says reasonable time, which of course, what does that mean, oh. right? No, I, you know what? I have it. Uh, I have it bookmarked <laughs> in my Federal Rules of Procedure book here. So you go ahead and talk, and I'll see if I can find that exactly. Notice of the deposition: A party who wants to depose a person by oral questions must give reasonable written notice to every other party. The notice must state the time and place of the deposition and, if known, the deponent's name and address. If the name is unknown, the notice must provide a general description sufficient to provide identification of the person or the particular class or group which the person belongs. That's, you know, that's the general uh, right. notice of the deposition. So it's a reasonable period of time. And in Terry's case, we looked at her local rules. Yeah, that now, was the local rule. You're right. Yeah, because we went over this in depth, Terry, and, <laughs> and bamboozled them the best we could. But have you looked at your local rules? It doesn't. It doesn't um, include that. It just refers to the regular federal rules. There's no. There's. There's some. Some um, local rules have a supplement to it that that deals with discovery. Hmm. And that might be on your court's website. It'll definitely be on your court's website. It's different than the actual local rules, you know, like hundreds of pages that you get with that? It's like an addendum that's listed in there. Hmm. Okay. It's usually part of the same document, but it it flows behind it. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dave, we're getting noise in the background. Yeah, I was going to say, there's somebody in the background here who needs to mute themselves. Uh, total and man, other, that's you. The Go other ahead. big thing on this is I'm dealing with a very crooked judge that's the same one I've been dealing with for years. And I came to the conclusion, this is what my I'm telling myself that I'm going to do after all this stuff, is that I'm going to file for recusal because of everything that he's done up to this point. Um, is been is and it's only gotten worse at the hearings and things that he's done. He's like threatening me and doing all kinds of weird stuff for like totally no, I, nothing I've done. I don't even know what context he was even referring to stuff in, and he was just blurting out stuff and whatever. And I just stood there and listened to him and did my objection. And then when I do my objection, then he gets mad at me, and I don't. It's just very, it's all very strange. So I'm at the point where I'm just going to recuse again. It's only been the you know, fifth time, and he'll probably refuse. 
Um, but I feel like with the sanctions thing that if he's already crooked and then they're putting in that, that he's going to, again, favoritism on their side, which is all he's done. That's what he did right in front of me at the hearing. Showed favoritism? Oh, he outright said, can you get that? And then allowed them to file another declaration after the hearing was over. And then when I put in a response to that, he threw mine out as moot and left theirs in. And then he said, I allowed them to do that. (laughs) He allowed them to put in extra evidence to prove a point so that they could win the case. They could win the point on the FDCPA. Yeah, the judges do stuff like that. And I faced a judge that when I objected, he just waved his hand at me. Yeah. Go away, go away. So it's not on the record. And you have to ask, what does that mean? Either when I was there, it was my motion was the first one filed in the first place. And they long, uh, how do you call that? They um, kept belonging the the hearing for months and then put in their summary judges. So then when we got there, theirs was heard first and mine wasn't even heard. Right. And then he allowed them to put in extra stuff. What San Diego, California. Ninth Which Circuit. district? Which district? Um, Southern California. Okay. So that's why, you know what I mean? It's, this has been ongoing for years, and every time I've done a recusal, he just refuses, you know, and then continues on. But now it's outright where if anybody listens to the audio, it's like I don't, I don't even know what he was saying. I don't know why he was asking the things he was asking. He was making threatening threats to me, and when I was literally getting up to walk out, and that's all I said is, I think I'll leave. Then he threatened me again, so that I threatened me with sanctions if I was going to leave, so that he could badger me and harass me again, <laughs> which is what he did. So all these things adding up, it's like there is no point to even continue in my mind because it's gotten to this point. And in that order... He outright took, I don't know, eight pages of the 10-page and gave his opinion, added stuff in that wasn't in any pleadings, and then denied me on the FDCPA. Um, And then he gave that additional time period for discovery, which wasn't even a sufficient amount of time to get anything done because it was less than 30 days. So that was a waste of time. And that's when she, they came in again and requested the second deposition, again, only allowing for 10 days or whatever it was. Um, and then I tr- said, no, I cannot make it. And here we are right now with the sanctions and the new summary judgment, which I thought we had talked about that night where you guys said that once you have a summary judgment on something, you know, and they're both denied that they can't come back in again with another one. And that's what they did. They filed a brand another, another one along with the sanctions. So they're going after you under rule 37. 37 D I believe it is. Okay. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you pulled down your local rules? Uh, I do when it, uh, what do you call it? I do it every year when they, February is when they renew it or whatever, the new one. I'm looking at civil, federal, uh, your local rules for your court, civil rule 26.1 deposition and discovery states conference required. The court will entertain no motion pursuant to rule 26 through 37 
unless councils have previously met and conferred concerning all disputed items. If counsel for the moving party seeks to arrange such a conference and counsel for the party against whom the motion made willfully refuses or fails to meet and confer, the judge, in the absence of prior order dispensing good cause with such meeting, may order a payment of reasonable expenses, including attorney's fees pursuant to Rule 37 and Local Rule 83.1. If counsel have offices in the same county, they are to meet in person. If counsel have offices in different county, they are to confer by telephone. Under no circumstances may the parties satisfy the meet and confer requirement by exchanging written correspondence. So, is she in your county or in a different county? She is in my county. Did, did you meet in the offices? Never. Did they Never meet, asked it, did, did they satisfy the requirements of Local Rule 26.1A? What you just read, I would say no. The court will but. entertain no motion pursuant to Rule 26 through 37 unless counsel have previously met and conferred concerning all disputed items. If there, if counsel have offices in the same county, they are to meet in person. Under no circumstances may the party satisfy the meet and confer requirements by exchanging written correspondence. End of story. The court will entertain no motion. The court can't. Okay, certificate, I, can certificate I, of compliance. At the time of filing any motion with respect to 26 and 37, counsel for the moving party must serve and file a certificate of compliance with this rule. So had, did she file a certificate of compliance? And if so, what does it say? Um, okay, I have the motion, I have the declaration, I have notice of motion, motion, no, that's not it either, hold on. Um, it's at the end of the document. Yeah, let me see here. And certification of meet and confer attempts. Attempts. Attempts don't satisfy it. If you can show an email that say that says that you didn't refuse, you just couldn't do it, and you and you offered later, then she's lied to the court. That's a violation of her. That's a violation. Yeah, wait a minute. Wait a minute, John. She didn't. The email wasn't a request to meet. It was a request for the deposition. She didn't even request the meeting. Before filing the Rule 37 motion for sanctions is what I'm talking about. I know, that's what I'm talking about. In the file email, a motion without conferring first. <laughs> exactly, and she didn't ask her to come to the office or you know, set a place where they could meet and confer. She yeah. did, you know what, I'm looking at the emails right now, but the thing is, it what she just read states that you have to call, right, not through, meaning if she wants me to set up for deposition, she can't put in an email form, she'd have to call no, me to do what that. what I'm talking about is your motion for sanctions. I mean, right. all that other stuff's in the past. you gotta, you got to let go of that and deal with what's the matter at hand. The matter at hand is a motion. The, the way to get rid of motions is by technicalities. 
This is what motion practice is all about. Okay? She filed a motion for sanctions. The, the local rules require her to contact you and, and set up a meeting. Because you're in the same county, it has to be a face-to-face -face meeting in her office because you don't have an office, okay? Just because she sent you an email at, at 6 at night that you had to respond by 8 in the morning wouldn't cover it. You, she has to set up a meeting at a time when you can come in the office and meet. And under no circumstances, it says, may the party satisfy the meet and confer requirement by exchanging written correspondence, okay? That's key right there. Emails won't do it. And they won't, they won't entertain the motion, the court won't, unless you've already met and conferred on all disputed items. So that, that's very important. The court can't look at that motion unless she satisfies this. And the certificate of compliance, she's got to either say that you refused or that you guys did it. You got together and did it. Now... You didn't refuse. You said you weren't available if she contacted you because she has to confer before filing this type of motion. And the local rules requires it to be in writing. Now, let me finish because you, you jump all over stuff. The next thing to look at is 26.1C, protective order. Any party or non-party against whom a motion under Rule 37 or Rule 45 is being made may notice for hearing at the same time a motion for protective order under Rule 26C. So you can get a protective order. You can try to get a protective order to protect you from the frivolous motion she's filing. So, if you've already received the motion, you wouldn't file for a protective order after that, would you? Why not? not yeah, because she didn't follow the rules. Right. Not a protective order from the deposition, a protective order from the motion for sanctions. How is that different? Okay, here's the only thing that's different about this, is that in that order, he stated... Um, the additional discovery time period for the TCPA ends on June 1st, say, and any response is due on, just say, June 14th. So that's already predetermined. There is no hearing date per se, or they don't have to call and get it. They're filing it. So they did all that on the 1st, and my response has to be, say, the 14th. So how is the protective order, which I haven't done before, so I don't know that much about it, um, different than, say, the opposition to the uh, sanctions motion. You have to do both. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't seem, you know, the, <laughs> the, the opposition you got to do because they filed a motion. Right. But you can also file a motion for protective order to protect you from it. You could also I guess file, a, you could I, also file. I always go back to look at the clown I'm dealing with who's already favored them through the whole case. So it's like, and if I don't have a lot of time because I'm working in other cases, I don't, I can't waste my time doing that additional stuff. If you and, don't do everything at your disposal, you can't complain when he smacks you. I can only do so many things in a day on so many cases. He's already cost me so much extra work because of the hearing and all these other things that have happened. So that's why I say that. It's not like I, you know what I mean? It's, 
multiple things I have to file and put in because of what's happened prior. That's additional work on me that nobody else has to do only because of his conduct. How many lawsuits do you have? I have one that's been that's on stay, and the other one is um, I I have to deal with that one right now, and then the one. How I'm many lawsuits about. do you have? Two, three, uh, four, five. Like three, four. Okay. There's the fallacy of getting too many lawsuits going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's... it's not so much that again. It's because of his conduct that I have to respond. No, and no, 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 no. You're not understanding, Pam. You you don't blame it on somebody else if you get too many cases going and then you run into the stuff. That's where you have the problems. That's why you don't get too many cases going at one time because you never know what's going to be coming. Well, it wasn't voluntary, I will say. So well, the one makes... thing that Dr. Graves always talks about is the flurry of motions. And that's where most people crumble is when the uh, opposition figures out that they can go and throw a bunch of stuff up there and overwhelm you. And you, and you get sloppy and you miss things. But the best way to, the best way to fight back is to hit them with everything you got. So in this instance, what I was listing off is you could, you could go and you do your opposition. You do a uh, motion for protective order to protect you from it. And you can do a motion to strike because it's, it's a frivolous motion and they violated their, um, a, uh, their bar, um, what do you even call it? What do you even call it, Dave? The bar rules that they have to comply with the rules, rules of professional, professional conduct, conduct right? they, 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 they lack candor with the court. You know, they conflated things to, to make it look like they complied with the rules where they didn't. And, you know, turns around, that can be sanctionable against them for lying to the court. Okay, so just to go over that part again, according to the rules, um, you're stating that it said meet and confer, meaning it has to be done in person because we are in the same county. So that would make it obviously easier to do. And she should call me to do that versus sending me correspondence saying, meaning that if she sent me a correspondence saying, when can you get together or we're going to do a deposition on this date, let me know if that's okay. That's not sufficient to uh, for the local. No, group. you're not listening. You're, you, I told you, put all the crap about the deposition out of your mind. We're dealing with the motion for sanctions. In order for them to file a motion for sanctions, they have okay. to confer with you first. Conferring means you have to get together in someone's office if you're in the same county. Written correspondence does not meet the confer requirement. And the court will not entertain the motion under Rule 37 unless the councils have met and conferred and discussed all issues. That's pretty clear. Nothing to do with the deposition, only to do with the motion for sanctions. Okay. The reason why I didn't think that applied to, in this case, and I'll tell you, is just because when I had my deposition before and you know we had some issues and stuff, that exactly what you read, I thought it only applied to that, meaning that if you're out of deposition, we had issues, we had to call the magistrate judge at that time to get it cleared up or taken care of um, and go on from there. I didn't understand that it meant, you know, pre and getting this type of stuff like sanctions. I didn't think you could do sanctions under this. I thought it was only under 11. 
sanctions. Okay, there's there's several different types of sanctions that an attorney can file for. There's four off the top of my head that I can think of. So Rule 11 sanctions, most people are familiar with it because Jerko attorneys use it to threaten people. Okay. It's very, it's rarely ever granted. Rule 11 sanctions is an extreme remedy. Sanctions are an extreme remedy. If people behave the way they're supposed to behave in court, they're not going to get sanctioned. Okay? But if a savvy attorney can write up a motion for sanctions and the opposition doesn't know how to handle it, it's easy to get because they can. the court's going to go, well, you know, they motioned for it properly. Opposition didn't deal with all the points. Well, we're going to give them the sanctions. Uh-huh. Rule 11 is a little different. They're, they're less likely to offer, if you read up on that, they're less likely to offer sanctions under Rule 11. It's, it's quite extreme. But in this instance, the way to make things to go away is on technicalities. So if the, the court, think of it from the point of the judge. Okay, we've got a pro se. She's already a headache. You know, she argues with me in court and stuff. The opposing counsel says she didn't show up for a deposition and she should be sanctioned. But she has stated that opposing counsel didn't meet the confer requirement before filing the motion for sanctions. Therefore, the motion should be denied, okay, because of failure to comply with the rules. Number one, he's looking at that. Number two, he's looking at your request for a protective order from the motion for sanctions because, you know, they didn't comply with the rules. Number three, he's looking at a potential motion to strike from you that's on the docket. Striking the motion because it's improper because they failed to comply with the rules. You've attacked it three different ways. He's going to look at it and go, well, gee, if I just deny the motion for sanctions, I'll have mooted the protective order and mooted the, uh, the uh, motion to strike. It's, it's, it's a win-win. I can go to the golf course. Okay. No, I got what you're saying. I'm sorry. I, I understand what you're saying, that it was for the motion. So um, that I understand. And then the other thing is in our magistrates set up the, you know, the scheduling orders way back when for plotting everything out in our timelines and everything for discovery and all that. If that technically ended in April, but he, the judge, then gave this, I don't know, minimal extension or whatever you want to call that, how it doesn't really set out other all it says is um, limited discovery until say June first. You know what I mean? It doesn't really state anything further than that. that and then at that time you can resubmit for summary judgments. That's what it states. So well, that's what it is. That's all it is. It's limited discovery till such and such date and then you can reapply for summary judgment. It's pretty clear. Okay. So in that case then that's why she just went and filed it is because the due date was on the first, say, and that's when she filed it along with the summary judgment again. Yeah. Okay. She, when you say it, you mean the motion for sanctions? Yeah, yeah. They yeah, filed because, it together. So, okay. Well, that's, that's what they do. I mean, that's their job. There's a deadline, and they file stuff, and that's what they do. And by putting in the motion for sanctions – She's distracting you from the motion for summary judgment. Yep. 
you see, this is, this is what I was talking about, the flurry of motions. And, and what happens is people become complacent. They think, oh, gee, everything moves so slow, blah, 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 blah. You know, I go out and file a couple more lawsuits. They all go slow. It seems like, you know, other ones I've settled right away. And then all of a sudden, swam, you get hit by three or four, five different things at once. I mean, you know, you can get you can get a motion for summary judgment, motions in limine, motions to for protective order, motions to strike. They'll 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 you know load multiple ba- unload multiple barrels all at the same time, and you're like, how do I deal with this all at once? And, and they're hoping you won't be able to. Right. That's why you don't have a bunch of lawsuits going. The strongest tools for the people that are listening that, that you can purchase are O'Connor's Federal Rules Civil Trials, which explains all the rules and details with case law behind it, and then buy yourself a downloadable set of O'Connor's Federal Forms. And they're, they're pre-set up motions that you know give you A, B, C, D, E, F scenarios, and then you just have to put in the facts, the facts, and the you know I like I have that. that. Can you elaborate on that? Because I have O'Connor's, I think it's 2014 or 2015, the book, and I was trying to find the forms, and I thought, did I get the wrong one? Is there two of them? Or you're saying the downloadable? Is there a disc or something that I'm missing? You have to buy it. It's something you buy separately. Okay. I think a lot of the forms are in the book, though. You just have to do all the typing. It's a hell of a yeah. lot easier if yeah. you just buy yeah. the forms. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was trying to do, though, was buy the forms. And I thought the bo- I was trying to figure that out because I didn't know. Go to O'Connor's website. Go to okay. O'Connor's website and look. And then when you buy the pack of forms, one of the thi- one of the thing that's that's in there is a outline or a directory that lists all the forms that are in there, and the book cross-references to the appropriate form. Okay, so, got and, it. And it's really slick. And, it will, and because a protective order is no big deal, okay? Yeah. I mean, mo- most motions are only like a page or two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and the court isn't going to want to look at it if you're long-winded. And O'Connor's is really punchy and right right on i mean it's written for lawyers to practice law that's what i've actually yeah i've actually gotten stuff that's been put in my cases that it's <laughs> i've got o'connor's and it, it, it it's right there it's, it's you know it's their forms that they used because i recognize okay. every single word got it well thank you because yeah i'll definitely like i said i have the book and i was like wait a minute i thought it was supposed to have forms and it didn't i mean i know it had the outline but you know what i mean not no, the actual it's, form. it's yeah it's separate outside the book the the forms are okay. printed in the book but you know the other just i mean it's a it's a template you just put your stuff in it and away you go it's got case that's law in them and everything okay that's what i was looking for so i'll i'll go get that then okay that makes and, it easier okay so if i hit them with those three things on the way back uh, from the sanctions motion, then that should resolve that thing. The motion, the summary judgment, I'm not worried about because I already have all my stuff laid out from prior. So it's just tweaking a few things and, you know, responding with that. Um, and then one other critical thing, I don't know if I think this is big and this has just came out for me over these this year, is on 
is summary judgment, the 56, what is it? I think it's C or D, I don't remember, the affidavits versus the business records. Like, which one prevails? Because, obviously, if you read under 56 for summary judgment, it states that they have to have first-hand knowledge and all that. But yet, if they're filing declarations that are, are declarations from miscellaneous people in the company who have no first-hand knowledge of anything, you have I guess to move to strike them. you got to move to strike those so Dave's that uh, they can't be that. considered. Right. But, but they're using it under the business records exception, and that, and I did move to strike them, and he he accepts all of them, and I went into great detail on it. And that's what I was confused, going, well, nobody has any firsthand knowledge. I rebutted each of their points as well. On top of it, did you have the opportunity to dis- Did you have the opportunity to depose the party beforehand? No, I attempted to, and I called the court for three days straight, um, and nobody answered the phone. And that's honestly what happened, just with my schedule and what I was going to do, and I ended up not doing it because I couldn't get a hold of somebody in the court. I don't know why they don't answer their phone. I think this is strange. I even called two weeks later. Right, right, June. okay. But well, wait a second. The, the, party, the, the parties we're talking about are employees of the company you're suing, Right. Yeah, uh, yes. Some are at then different all, locations throughout the then U.S. All you, then all you have to do is give the deposition to the attorney, the, the notice of deposition to the attorney in the case. Yeah, the court but doesn't I, have anything to do with it. The court doesn't have anything to do with it. Oh, I'm thinking of subpoenas. Oh, that's why. I'm sorry. Um. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, there was a reason why. I'm trying to remember what that was. Because we talked about that last time, too, about the timeline on that. Um, yeah, that's what happened, is that I didn't get in touch with anybody, and I ran out of time because I was going to do the subpoenas. Yeah, but um, there's no subpoenas for next time, or if this comes up in your next case. You, what you do is you just serve the notice that you're going to depose the party, if you have the named party that you're going to depose, you serve it on the attorney that's representing the company because they're employees of the company. If you just need to do a general deposition, you lay it out in the duces tecum part and in the uh, deposition notice of deposition itself, the subject areas that the deponent has to be able to, has to be competent to testify on. In the event they bring someone that's incompetent to testify on what you've requested, you can get sanctions on them because they've wasted your time in the deposition. So you need need to spell things out carefully there. Now, based on your situation, what you can do, you can also file motions, motions in limine to limit what part of the record can be used, even if the court's willing to accept it. You can still file more motions to strike before the court looks at the summary judgment because you said the court ruled on it before what format was it filed in that the court ruled on your motion for summary on your motion to strike i'd have to go back and look because this was months ago and um the other i just remembered why is because this is something we talked about before too was that i thought that they were going to be that the declarants were going to be at the hearing for the summary judgment. 
No one no, sits in no, here in summary judgment. There's no witnesses. Well, that's what I was, it's done that's on the what paper. And that's what I had thought was going to happen. That's why I didn't do anything, because I expected that they were going to be there. Yeah. Incorrect so, assumption, unfortunately. Yep. Yep. And that was something learned, too, that in a lot of the other people I talked to said, well, that's the whole point of it is the evidence and this and that. I'm like, I didn't know until, John, you made it clear uh, last time we spoke why that is. So now I totally I understand what you're saying and why that is the way it is. So, yes, lesson learned. <laughs> okay. Well, does that take care of things? Because we're running uh, right up on the time here, and then we've got a couple other people. I need no, to that's get to great. It. I appreciate it, and um, I'll, I'll look into all that stuff, and I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's go to Puzzle Man here. Hello, Frank. How you doing? Hi, Dave. Can you hear me okay? Yep. We got you loud okay. and clear. All right. Thanks. Um, I apologize, first off, for uh, unmuting my phone a few minutes ago. Uh, that's all right. I, I know yeah. how to choke you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when I need to. All right. Yeah, and uh, I thank Terry for hooking me up with uh, one of the other fellows in the group here to get on the site. Um, I'm partnered up with somebody. Yeah, I passed uh, your uh, uh, Skype on tour. So she's okay, talking. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. welcome. Uh, thank you, thank you. Okay, what I got going on here is um, uh, I had a Facebook account in my uh, handle Puzzle Man. And I started receiving emails from Facebook telling me I needed two photocopies. Uh, 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 emails or text messages? Emails. Okay. All right. Want to make sure. Yes. Okay. And they stated that they wanted two um, copies of photo IDs with my name, uh, photo, and a birth date to verify who I was. And went back and forth a few times because I told them I wasn't willing to give up that information and I didn't want my real name on the account because I had some stalkers um, uh, who shot at me in this area and I, I didn't want my real name on the account. So they kept telling me I needed to give them the information. Eventually I did and, and in the attempt to clarify this, issue with them, I told them I was attaching my phone number to my Facebook account. And so I attached my uh, phone number, and just after I attached my phone number, Facebook locked me out of my account. So I wrote them back and told them to, and oh, excuse me, let me back up. When I attached my phone number, I uh, started receiving all these text messages of people uh, on, on Facebook and my contacts were sending me all these things, uh, uh, notifications and things that they posted. And so I told them to stop, and they told me to go into my settings and change my settings, whereas they already told me that, uh, I mean, they already blocked me out of my account. Um, so you well, obviously I, couldn't go in and change the settings, right? Correct, correct. Okay. And then I sent back, I said, you locked me out of my account. I, I can't get in and change them. They sent back another generated uh, message saying to go into my account and change the settings. So I 
I I sent another email back to this uh, fellow who I was uh, talking with before, who sent me a couple of emails with regarding this issue, and I told him to uh, delete my account. And in the process of telling them to delete my account, I said I only attached my phone number in an attempt to um, resolve the issue I had with uh, their um, identity problem with me. I said I didn't give you permission to use my phone number for any uh, Facebook notifications or anything of such. It was only um, with the matter at hand. And I said, you didn't have my permission to do any of the other things. So um, I kept getting the text messages, and then I, I oh, wrote uh, Hang on a second. I, want, I got a question here. Sure. The text messages, were these coming from Facebook, or were they coming from people that were other people that were sending to you? Well, um, hold on a second here. Let me uh, try and get into this thing. Uh, well, I mean, it, you should pretty well, much know it, that information well, now. Yeah, it was uh, people who were my contacts who I had friended in Facebook. But when I talked to uh, uh, one of the gals that lived down the street from me here, I talked to her and I said, can you see anything on my account uh, where it uh, has information of my phone number or anything? They go, no. Uh, they they totally took my account down, and it's off of Facebook. And um, and what I'm trying to figure out is, are these messaging coming from Facebook, or are they coming from these uh, people's accounts through Facebook? Well, the, what are what are the messages? Are they messages from the people saying, "Hi, Frank, how are you?" No, or what, what they are, it says, okay. Um, Kathy, so-and-so, shared We Love Birds post, uh, HTTPS, uh, Facebook.com, and then it's got the, the address. And it says, reply with your comment like. Or, or reply oh, so with your comment this, or So like. what, what, what it is, if this one of these people did something, then Facebook is sending you a text saying, well, Susie Q did such and such and so-and-so. Right. That, is that what's happening with all of these? Yes, and I've got over 540 now. Okay. Okay, and uh, I, I, I did get a chance to speak to Craig um, a little bit about this, and um, I won't say much right now, but um, i got to find uh, uh, an IT tech to try and figure out who, in fact, these are coming from. Well, it, obviously, they're, it's coming from Facebook, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like 99.9% .9 sure they are coming from Facebook because the number is, uh, there's a, several different numbers they come from. And the, uh, let me get back in here. Okay, um, Three two six six five. Well, one, it, one, it doesn't matter what the number is. Have you Googled it to find out what yeah, you can? Facebook, yeah, it says Facebook messaging. <clears throat> okay. So that's who the source is. Right. Right. 
I'm pretty sure, yes, because it says so. Okay. Anybody out there is uh, listening, Google it themselves and they find the same thing. No, we don't need that. That's why I just wondered if you identified it. So the source of these text messages is Facebook, Mm -hmm. and you did not give them consent. No, I did not, and I revoked my consent as well. Okay, you revoked it. Uh, and when did you revoke it, just out of curiosity? Um, back in March, uh, around the 18th or 19th, I can't remember the exact date. Of this year? Yes. Oh, okay. So that's well after the omnibus declaratory ruling that said you can revoke consent in, uh, in uh, any reasonable manner at any time. So, you know, you've done that, right. and you continue to get the texts after that. Right. Right. How did you revoke it? Um, I'll uh, have it on here. I mean, did you do it by text message, email, email. snail email. mail, what? E- email. Email. Okay. It was an email. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, from what I can see with what you've explained, it would appear that You've got some good claims. On March uh, 19th, I believe it was, when I sent okay. them the uh, email. That, yeah, uh, no, that, that's fine. I mean, I just wanted to uh, have an idea when that occurred. The bottom line is you revoked your consent, and they keep sending you things about, you know, hey, so-and-so, Susie Q did this, and... Um, you know, Tom Terrific did this, and Joe Blow did this. And, you know, you you may want to, you know, you can respond to them or or whatever. But it is Facebook that's sending it. It's not these people that are sending it to you. Right. right. Yeah. Because okay. I I had uh, I have tried to respond to some of these in the past, and uh, they don't get any kind of an answer. And then I I write in the word stop sending these messages. And they'll stop for a couple of days, and then here they come again. And um, so you've got that evidence that you've done that too, right? Oh yeah, I, I've got one here. It was from uh, three twenty, uh, and this one says confirmed to edit SMS preferences. Go to my Facebook.com settings uh, to turn off SMS replies. Stop reply help. Uh, for other options, SMS charges may apply. And then I responded with, sorry, but you locked me out of my account. I cannot change my settings. You will not allow me back into my account. And then I write, stop all SMS messages to this phone number from anyone on Facebook. You, however, may respond to this agreement. And that, and I didn't get a response. What do you that. mean? You may respond to this agreement. What do you mean by that? Well, what I meant when I wrote that was for them to stop sending. Uh, well, but that's you. Did I hang myself? Well, yeah, you don't. You don't. Well, say, that's only from one number. That's uh, yeah, That's only on yeah. one number. Yeah. And all these other numbers. Well, I'm I'm going to say that uh, from what you've told me here that it. It has every appearance that you've got good claims against them. And they still continue to call, right? Uh, text yeah. you? 
Right. As a matter of fact, I got one today. Um, and they're tapering off and not as uh, many as I was getting, but uh, I'm still getting them occasionally. Yeah. So. Well, you you know you you need to get in and study and and learn the process of uh, how to bring an action against them. Well, but, I'm you know you. I'm preserving my evidence. I already got right. I've been listening to uh, all the webinars here on the TCPA. Right. But um, what I'm questioning is how would I write this up when it has nothing to do with um, uh, um, FDCPA or anything like that or debt or anything? Uh, It's got nothing to do with debt. This is under a completely different statute. Okay. It's under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. It's got nothing to do with the debt. Well, yeah, I know that, but when I go in and look at the templates and everything, I get kind of confused. At, um, how the to templates write of what? What are you talking the about? Complaints. The right well, complaints. well, what you you got to understand how you state a claim. You have to, you know, you, you got to understand that process. You've got to understand, okay, you know, you, you go through the all the stuff that you have in any complaint against anybody, uh, only instead of saying, well, you know, uh, you know, the Joe Blow sent me a Dunning letter and this and that, you say, you know, on such and such a date, uh, this occurred, and, you know, you're going to paint your picture of what happened with them. How did it start? How did this whole mess start? you got to paint a picture for the courts, for the court to see, uh, why your claims are plausible and legitimate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's going to take some time. You're going to need to go and look at a bunch of different complaints. I've got a, a whole bunch of TCPA complaints out there. If you, you go on Pacer and you Google my, or I mean, uh, just do a search on my name, you can look at some of my Midland complaints that I did, the amended complaints. There's other cases. I've got uh, I've got one that I just filed. I just filed one last week, a week ago today. Mm-hmm. Only you're going to be talking about you're getting text messages instead of phone calls. But you, you know, you've you've got to work to study and understand the process and how to write it and uh, be able to state your claims properly. Well, that's uh, I understand. Yeah, I've been. Uh, a member in the past, and I've listened to you mm-hmm. for nearly eight years, off and on now. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah. So I'm familiar with everything, and um, as far as getting everything, all my ducks in a row, uh, I just want to take some time. Oh, I know. And um, is it? I uh, can't. I didn't look up the. Uh, uh, statute of limitations on this yet? Uh, four years. Uh, it is four years. Yes. Uh, you got plenty of time. State, does it matter which state I'm in? No, no. Oh, okay. four years. That's right. federal. Oh, okay. yeah. You've got yeah, plenty. You've got plenty one. of time. Okay. Yeah, I thought I only had one year, so that's oh, why no. I was a little bit nervous. About well, it. well, no. See, that's 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 why you gotta you gotta learn what the statutes say. You got to go study the individual statute. You're going to bring your your actions under. Um, just because the FDCPA is one year doesn't mean everything is. You know the FCRA is 
two years from date of discovery. The right, TCPA, the TCPA is four years. So um, that's why it's so important that people uh, study the statute, so you know exactly what the rules are that you're operating under. Mm-hmm. So with this, you got plenty of time to study. Okay. You, you know, you're you're. From everything you've told me, everything I, I see, you got a very legitimate claim, and and you're you're sitting on a ton of money if it's done right. Uh, I'm thinking over eight hundred something. Eight hundred what? Eight hundred bucks? Eight hundred thousand? Mm, no, nah, you're not going to get that much out of it, but it's worth a lot. Well, I thought they were fifteen hundred dollars after no. the first. Well. No, see, this this is part of you got to study the statute more and understand exactly what it says. It's five hundred dollars per call. Per call, right? Okay, it's not up to five hundred for what you're getting. You're it's five hundred per call, but it can potentially be trebled to fifteen hundred dollars per call, but that's up to the discretion of the court. Right. Okay. I read a couple of cases on this already, and I'm kind of familiar. I'm, yeah, I'm well, you got to be you, you got to be very well understood, not just familiar. Right. I mean, that's a, you. You have to understand this. If you're going to pursue an action on your own, you have to know every detail about this because if you don't, a, a lawyer will eat you up. Because they'll well, lie to you right. and they'll tell you different things. Right. That, that's going against a, a big corporation like Facebook and having their um, high-priced lawyers and, and hundreds of them at that. Um, I, I'm kind of feeling a little intimidated against, against going. I am well, twisted. I, yeah, I can understand that, but the way yeah. that you deal with that is through education. You have to learn and study and get to know this stuff like the back of your hand. You know, I, I've i learned a lot, but I've done a lot of litigation. Have I learned a lot as I've gone through it? Of course. Yeah. 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 I know I have to own it. Yep, you absolutely have to own it. And you gotta you got to know all the details because in the TCPA, oh, and, and especially, oh, well, that doesn't apply to text messages. Well, okay, when they tell you that, do you know how to counter that? Uh, not yet. Um, okay, there you yeah. go. Yet, yeah, not yet. Yeah. It, the information's out there. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. out there. It's exactly. you go read that. Go read the uh, omnibus declaratory ruling and order by the FCC from July 10th of 2015. Go read that. July 10th, did you say? July 10th of 2015, the FCC Omnibus Declaratory Ruling and Order. Oh, I think I got that bookmarked. Okay. Yeah, I started reading it last night. I was up till 5:30 this morning. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've been I've been hitting this since Thursday since I got on the site. Well, good, good, <laughs> good. And that's how, that's how you're going to learn it. You just keep going on, and you know you listen to these calls, and you you know we've got a ton of information on TCPA stuff on these recorded calls mm-hmm. over the last two years. I mean, there's just an absolute ton of stuff on TCPA. Right. Well, uh, so, thank you, and I uh, will get out of here and 
let somebody else get in here. But okay. um, real quick, uh, your food stores thing, if people want to stock up on cheap um, survival food, chia seeds and water. You can live on 10 pounds of chia seeds for 100 days. Oh, there you go. That's one thing you can do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Thank Frank. You. Thank you. Yeah. Right. All right. We're going to go to It's a Sham here. We're going to get you in quick, and then we're going to wrap it up because we're running way over tonight. Hey. Hey. How you doing? Hey, wonderful. What you're saying is so 100% correct. you got to be well-knowledged, uh, got to know all the loopholes, got to make sure that you know what you're talking about before you talk to the other side. And uh, it's amazing. But um, um, I wanted to see if Pamela's still there. If she's not, then I'll talk about another sub- subject. Uh, I don't know whether she's still on or not. Okay. Is that the same Pamela that dealt with uh, First Financial Asset Management? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, what's going on with that uh, appeal? Is it still pending? It's still pending over a year and a half later. You made some really, really, really good arguments on that. I, I went ahead and pulled it up and uh, I was really amazed. I, I I don't think I don't think they'll I mean it's the uh, Express consent is really what I want to talk about, but uh, um, they they didn't put any evidence in there. They're dead. You just you just ended up dealing with a jackass judge. Let's put it that way. That's the same one that I'm talking about tonight in all my other cases. <laughs> <laughs> he does but, um, anything to deny. That's just his. Uh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. He's corrupt. He's corrupt. Oh, absolutely, 100%. I read the whole case, I mean, from from the complaint all the way up to the appeals. It, it's stupid. But uh, I'm going to discuss express consent. And, Dave, I already know the answers, but I've seen this question be asked all the time, and I want the listeners to listen to to what Dave's going to say. Okay, express consent has to call, has to come from the person who answers the phone. Am I correct, Dave? Uh-huh. Okay. You file a lawsuit, let's say let's say you file a lawsuit against a collection agency and then they say they have expressed consent that they were trying to call somebody else and then you, they file a summary judgment and they put in an affidavit and evidence from the original creditor stating that um they had expressed consent to call another person. Not not you, but right. a different person, completely. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That that uh, that is not express consent. Am I correct? That is absolutely correct. Okay, because I've seen this question asked all the time on on the web, and I'm dealing with that uh, very similar thing <clears throat> against a company that's been hammered before. Uh, but uh won't m- mention the name of the company because <laughs> I'm having fun with the summary judgment. Um, John, if you're still there? John's here. I'm here. Hey, John. Um, hey. Why, uh, this was something in regards to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Discovery, and uh, I think I'm going to hammer these people. I don't know what the attorney's thinking, but I really don't care. They're going to pay me. Let's put it that way. That's good. 
yeah, uh, they admitted all uh, all three elements of the TCPA, and and uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and hammer them. One of the things that uh, I did is uh, I got all the recordings. I didn't get all the recordings. They left like almost 50 messages. Uh, I think I only took like maybe 10 or 12 messages. <clears throat> but you can testify to the fact that uh, uh, there were numerous other similar, if not exactly, the same messages. I you can testify in deposition. Or absolutely. I mean affidavit, I mean. Absolutely. And the thing is, uh, I got the phones and, and my uh, call notes. You know, my handwritten notes say that, that I left my that they left I think that I can't remember if I did or not, but either way, they, they left messages and they they admitted that too, so I gotta wait for the car records and I'm gonna hammer them. Hopefully I'll make some case law here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They'll settle with you. Well, see, I, I, I'm not worried about them. I, I love the money. I definitely want the money, but my main thing is there hasn't been that many case law in the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. You, I don't think you're going to get to the Fifth Circuit. No. No. I think the, I think they'll settle after they see my summary. Uh, they're they're. I believe they're going to settle. This. <laughs> you and I have discussed this. You, you know, they've admitted everything. Like you said, they've admitted all three legs of the stool uh, <laughs> for uh, TCPA, and this is a, a lawyer milking the client. Absolutely. Well, that's pretty much all I got. Uh, Pamela, uh, I wish you the best of luck. I hope they reverse that. That means that, that it would be the 11th Circuit, the 3rd Circuit, and the 9th Circuit will, I mean, it, it'll be overwhelmingly uh, rule that uh, who the cult party is or who the, yeah. who, who the expressed consent has to be come from. Yeah. It's not from the uh, intended recipient. The, the, the only thing she didn't argue part. was, right, the only thing she didn't uh, got into was the Chevron indifference, but we didn't know at the time, so this this was almost two and a half years ago, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, still, th I still think she, her arguments were, were top-notch. Well, there you go. You got somebody reading your stuff, Pam. Oh, and just to add one key point, which I thought is very fascinating, is the judge made a statement in his order, and when I called him out on it because it was wrong, he was saying that I put my cell number in the box on the form. There was no cell number box in the form. After his order was done and he knew I was going to appeal, he went in and changed his record. Oh, 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 oh. oh boy. <laughs> yeah. He's as corrupt as I come, isn't he? Oh, well. Oh, well. All right. Well, does this take care of things? We're way past time tonight, guys. You guys have a great night. I appreciate what you guys do. Thank you. All righty. You're welcome. All right, everybody, we're going to wrap it up for tonight. We've gone way over, but we uh, we had some good discussion to uh, help uh, Pam on some of her stuff, help her understand better what she's dealing with. And that's what we're here for, to help people. So uh, tomorrow night there is an open call. That's on blogtalkradio.com forward slash W-L-I-Y-D. To get to Jesse's website, all you got to do is take and open a browser and type in knockoutcollectors.net, and that's T-O-R-S dot net. That'll take you right to Jesse's site. It's a buck. It costs you a dollar 
to get in and, and use the entire site for a week. After that, it's $49 a month for as long as you want to be a member. And uh, uh, we do have somebody, Terry, just uh, helped Frank, who was on a little bit ago. Uh, he, he shared a membership with somebody last week. It, you can literally get it down to about $24.50 a month. I mean, that's we know some people are real tight on the bucks, and every dollar counts. That's a way to do that. So uh, anyway, you've got to get into the website and study the material that's there that's organized, you're not going to get what you need by being on the calls and getting bits and pieces and parts of conversations. We'll help you put the pieces of the puzzle together on what's in the website versus how uh, your situation is, but it's not a substitute. Then, of course, Wednesday night uh, is Terry's call. If for some reason you are not on Terry's email list, send an email to Queen Songbird at gmail.com simply say you can put it right in the subject line please put me on the list that's all you got to say and she'll send the reminders out to you but do it right away don't wait till wednesday afternoon because you probably won't get the reminder in time so here again we're here to help uh thanks to uh terry jeff and john for joining me on the call tonight and we will do it for another year because this was Episode 1 of Year 8 of Dallas Debt Discussion. And remember, everybody, it's your call. So you need to participate. You need to be on here asking questions. And more than anything, tell other people. Let other people know that we're out here, that Jesse's site is there, and there is a way that you can deal with these people and deal with them very effectively. And most of the time you can put money in your pocket in the in the uh, process of doing that. That's what I've been doing, and it's been very good to me. I've worked at it. Uh, it's given me a very good return on investment of my time, and it'll do the same for others as long as they're willing to contribute. Thanks again to everybody. Have a great rest of the evening. I'm going to finish doing my dispute letters to some CRAs and take them down, put them in the mailbox, and then go to bed. Talk to everybody tomorrow night on Blog Talk. Good night. Good night. Good night.